London, Ontario, known as one of the greenest and most resilient cities in Canada. Wait, what? Okay, maybe it isn't yet. That's the London Environmental Network's vision for our city. This podcast asks how close we are to realizing that vision. This is a tour of sustainability in London. I'm Molly Mixa. I'll be your tour guide. to the podcast. This is part two of The River, looking at Deshkanzibi, also called the Thames River or Antler River, that runs through London, Ontario. If you're able to, I encourage you to get outside, take a walk along the Thames Valley Parkway, or anywhere else where there's water running, while you're listening to this podcast. In part one, we looked at the general health of the river, especially around concerns like combined sewer overflows. We also considered the issue of who speaks for the river from an organizational perspective. In part two, we're making it personal. First, I'll be talking to Barry Orr, Sewer Outreach and Control Inspector for the City of London, about sewage treatment and individual habits and responsibilities. Then you'll hear my conversation with Anishinaabe educator Wasezi Deliri, where we discuss building personal connections to and relationships with water and the river. Here we go. Barry Orr works at the Greenway Wastewater Treatment Centre, one of five water treatment facilities in London. I was lucky enough to get a full tour of the facility from Barry on a particularly pungent day in October 2020. You can see photos from that tour in the show notes. We talked a bit on site following that tour, and then later we spoke online. Thank you so much for the tour, Barry. That was extremely educational for me. Glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> to get used to the smell. <laughs> I've been here for 27 years now, so it's just another day. <laughs> do you want to just sort of explain what you do? Sure. I'm the sewer outreach and control inspector for the City of London. And what that job entails, really, is that I protect our community, I inspect various uh, businesses, and I educate uh, the public. So our program is called PI. Protect, inspect, and educate. Really, we want to excel at community partnerships and create excellence in education and help the public understand that a simple thing like uh, flushing a toilet can have uh, consequences to our system if there is material in there that isn't, you know, pee, poo, or paper. I started in operations, and then in 2008, the city asked me to work on an educational slash compliance uh, program based around our bylaw, and um, that has spiraled into what we have today. The bylaw. I bet you don't think much about bylaws when you're flushing the toilet. I know I never have before. So what does London's bylaw say? Waste Discharge Bylaw, WM16, in force and effect since January 1st, 2018, says, in part, you can't flush or pour down the drain. Waste containing more than 100 milligrams per liter of fat oil or grease. Fats, oil, and grease not allowed. Solids larger than 6.7 millimeters square. Solids not allowed, including tampon applicators, goldfish bound for goldfish heavens, and Barbie doll heads. More on that one later. 
You're also not legally allowed to flush or pour down the drain waste which may cause harm to the public sewage works or waste which may cause an impairment to the quality of the water in any watercourse. The watercourse, in our case, is the Thames River. That's where our water goes once it's been treated. So you can't flush or pour down the drain anything that will ultimately hurt the quality of the water in the river. And that's the bylaw. Okay, back to Barry Orr and how he goes about educating people about that bylaw. Is your department responsible for those stickers on the back of toilet doors in public places that say just peep? What does it say? Pee poo and toilet paper down the... It does. Uh, yeah, and we're responsible for that. And we're responsible for a lot of other unique uh, things that we've put out uh, to the public to help with educating, like our grease cup, for instance, the Your Turn Grease Cup for people's fat soils and grease. The stickers, we've got coloring books, we've got comic books, we've got uh, videos. Um, you know, we've really put a, a lot uh, in to helping educate uh, our community. We've probably done over 500 different presentations to schools and universities, colleges, uh, different groups, uh, church groups, environmental groups. Um, I think that our last uh, count, we've had over 50,000 people that we've had direct contact with in helping with the education. We've had calls from all around the world because of the program that we're doing here in the City of London for educating and um, inspecting and, and protecting because it's working. Barry has spoken internationally, been published in various trade and academic papers, and been recognized by professional organizations for his work in the field. For example, in April 2019, he received the Water Environment Association of Ontario's Golden Manhole Award. He's a good teacher, so I asked him to explain how the sanitary sewer system works. When you flush your toilet at your house, when you uh, have a shower, you brush your teeth, you do laundry or dishes, that water is wastewater that leaves your house via a private drain connection, connects into the sanitary sewer main that travels to a wastewater treatment plant via gravity, or it travels to a pumping station, and then the pumping station will pump it up to an elevation that allows for the rest of the flow to that wastewater treatment plant to be via gravity. You gave me a great tour of uh, the water treatment facility where you are. Um, do you want to, in, in not too much detail, go through kind of the steps of once the water comes into the treatment facility and then eventually is released into the river, what happens in between there? Uh, I'll give you the quick Coles Notes version mm -hmm. of wastewater treatment. So your wastewater comes into the plant and it goes through a screen. And when it goes through this uh, screen, um, it's approximately about a little less than 25 millimeters, uh, this screen is. And so anything that uh, is large, it will catch on these screens will then be uh, collected and put into uh, landfill. So it goes through that screen, then it enters a degridding system and the degrider basically slows the flow down so the inorganic materials like dirt will settle to the bottom and then we'll put that um, in landfill. Um, goes to a primary. The primary is where we uh, just allow gravity to do the work. So things like uh, Fat soils will float to the surface of the primary 
And then things that are heavy, like solid human waste, will settle to the bottom. And so we'll, uh, we'll take off the grease and uh, that floatable stuff, and that will go out to landfill. And the stuff that settles, called sludge, we'll put into our holding tank, and that will be part of our biosolids treatment. So after, um, after we go through the primary, we go into a secondary system, which is where we introduce the microorganisms and we then will have that effluent from the aeration section settle into what's called a final tank. The microorganisms have, have multiplied and they divided and so they become heavy and so they settle at the bottom of this final tank where we are then able to take those microorganisms and introduce them right back again to the front of that aeration system and, and start that process all over again. The final effluent that is leaving that final is just clear water. It's a very highly regulated uh, criteria that we meet according to the ministry's guidelines. And uh, basically, that's what's going out to the receiving environment. Uh, it's disinfected um, throughout periods of the years. And in London, we use UV disinfection before it enters the receiving water. Um, so that basically tells you the process in a nutshell. There's a little bit more to uh, the biosolids process where we will dewater and um, that will go into an incinerator. And that's the process. Great. Um, and how long has the sewage s system been working the way it is now? Well, I think uh, the Greenway facility has a history dating back to the early, early uh, 1900s. Wow. And are there, um, could it be approved? I think in today's uh, society, we can always make improvements in every aspect. Uh, for wastewater, it's a very, very expensive uh, process. Um, there's a lot of uh, costs associated with treating the wastewater. On December 7th, 2020, almost $20 million in federal funding was announced for improvements at London's Greenway and Adelaide wastewater treatment plants. The City of London is set to pay about $30 million for these projects. To quote CTV News, part of the planned improvements include building physical barriers between the river and the two facilities, said Scott Mathers, London Water and Wastewater Manager. He said the barriers will allow the plants to operate at full capacity during flooding events. Good news. Another area, though, that needs work is the issue of pharmaceuticals getting into our water systems. Barry says that across the globe, municipalities are exploring ways to deal with this problem. One way drugs are getting into water is through people's bodies. Drugs are being excreted. Another way is people flushing them. People need to remember to return unused pharmaceuticals, prescription and otherwise, to the pharmacy. I asked Barry to talk about other bad flushing habits. Yeah, fortunately, we have a lot of things getting down toilets, especially right now with uh, with COVID. We are seeing an increase in uh, PPE being flushed, such as gloves and wipes, masks, hair, even just hair off of a hairbrush, dental floss, um, feminine hygiene products, the baby wipes, the bandages. Heck, the other day we had a parking ticket. Uh, so <laughs> the, the list goes on and on of people treating the toilet like a garbage can. And we really need people to understand that it should only be human waste and toilet paper going down a toilet. 
One of the products Barry is most concerned about is disposable wipes, as in baby wipes or antiseptic wipes. Because companies boldly label them as flushable, people flush them, a lot of them. None of these items that are currently on the market that are labeled flushable have been approved by um, the wastewater community. These are wipes that have been labeled flushable because the manufacturer has decided that they're flushable. And so that's something that we're really working on uh, here in London is to try and get a standard in place with our, with our federal government on a label of uh, flushable and the criteria that you must go through in order to put uh, a label on a product as flushable. I asked Barry if there was headway being made on this issue. He said that there has been some progress, but as with so many things, it's been slowed by the pandemic. Hopefully there will be some action soon. Flushing these solids down the toilet is costing a lot of money. We estimate in Canada that over $250 million is spent every single year to just remove the garbage material from the wastewater system. So think about that. That's over $250 million that we could be using in some other form. I think that's a large amount. That's a lot. Yeah. And just going back to something you mentioned in our tour, as an example of you know, how bad something small can get. You had a story about, was it a Barbie doll head that had gone down? Yes, that's a, a, over the years, we've seen lots of different uh, items that have been flushed, causing different problems, whether they're little toy cars or in this actual incident, it was a Barbie doll. And, and yes, it plugged one of the pumps and I'm, I was the one that had to take the pump apart. And unfortunately, there was no way to relieve the pressure. So, you know, at uh, the end of the day, uh, yeah, I got a little uh, wet on that one. <laughs> kind of shower you don't want. No, thanks for breaking up that uh, memory. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Take your mind off the pandemic. <laughs> um, was there anything else with, with regard to individual habits that we should note? Why don't we talk a little bit about the grease cup? Yes. Tell me about the... I picked up uh, a new grease cup last week at my public library. It's now in my refrigerator. How did that happen? Uh, that's excellent. I'm glad to hear that you're using those. So that's a really uh, great success story that we started back... Oh, geez. That's probably back 2013. We started with this little grease cup that we uh, wanted people to put their fat soils and grease into. And uh, we were amazed that people started using it and putting um, their fat soils and grease in the cup. And, you know, at that day, we asked you to throw it into the garbage. And we've seen great improvements on the sewer line in our residential neighborhoods because people aren't putting any of that fats from, you know, say bacon or, you know, cooking a chicken or a roast or anything like that. So, so that uh, your turn cup. We've handed out now over 150,000 cups in the city of London. We, we have collection depots at all four of our Enviro depots in London where people can bring us those full cups of fat, soils, or grease, and then we can have it uh, turned into energy at an anaerobic digester. So not only are we protecting your private drain connection, our city sewer main, the wastewater treatment plant, but 
we're taking this waste and turning it into a resource. And so we're really excited about that. Heck, we've had calls all across uh, Canada from different municipalities. I think we currently have about 15 different municipalities across Canada using um, a grease cup. And so that originated here in the, in the city of London. So kudos to our community for uh, making this such a success. That's amazing. So yeah, people can pick those up in different public places. Uh, libraries, I know, are one. Are there other places that distribute oh, them? Yeah, all, all four of the Enviro depots will also give you uh, cups. We've had a lot of, uh, of outreach from a number of community uh, partners asking, can they have cups and distribute them, whether it's a church, whether it's a school, if uh, condominiums or apartments want cups uh, to hand out to, to their residents, then we've collaborated with uh, a number of places uh, across the city of London. And so we're really pleased with that. So those are some of the things that we've done. And if uh, everybody can just uh, keep using the cups and if you're going to one of those depots, then just drop them off and mm-hmm. we'll turn them into energy. So most important, have any kind of container. Do not put your bacon grease, your fats and oils down the drain. Second, if you can pick up a cup or two, pick it up and use that. Third, if you can get it to the Enviro Depot or get a collection in your neighborhood together, does someone drop them off at the Enviro Depot? That fat and grease will actually be used for energy. Exactly. Terrific. Has the grease cup made a tangible difference? I have to tell you that the the work in the city of London, we haven't had an overflowing sewer because of, uh, of fat, soils, and grease in now over five plus years. We've saved hundreds of thousands of dollars because we aren't having those blockages that we used to from fat, soils, and grease. We've reduced the, uh, you know, hot spots that were a place that we'd have to spend a lot of time watching. We've reduced that by over 75%. So that means that the community and and the city of London staff are, are doing great things to make this a sustainable city. Excellent. I asked Barry what he thinks needs to happen for London to become one of Canada's greenest cities. Yeah, I think, you know what, I think the, the community here in the city of London is doing a, a great job at understanding how our system works. It's understanding how the sewer lines play a role in their lives how the rivers and creeks play a role in their lives and how they all function. What what we probably need to do a better job on is actionable items. And what I mean by that is we need to listen to the advice that we're giving today in this podcast, that toilets are not garbage cans. Then you, as the citizen, can do an actionable item that specifically Let's just take the example of a disinfectant wipe. You know that disinfectant wipe is not going to be flushed and you put it in the garbage. That's an action that we need people to participate in. We need people to understand that if they are washing their car in the driveway, that the dirty soapy water is entering the catch basin and the catch basin is entering the creeks or rivers or storm ponds. That's a contamination. So we need to make changes on that. And the simple change is that you would be either washing a car on the lawn, which would then act as a filter, or you take it to a car wash. Um, Let's look at pools. You know, London has a lot of pools. And so draining your pool water out to the road uh, with uh, chemicals in it 
is going to harm the water environment. So you need to know what options are available and look to the City of London to help you with those opportunities. Where where do things go? What do you need to do? Do you dechlorinate? We're here as a resource. Another actionable item Barry recommends is what he calls the flush challenge. Part one of the challenge, make sure there's a garbage can in every washroom for everything non-flushable. And by the way, that includes Kleenex, which, unlike toilet paper, was not designed to decompose in the septic system. Part two of the flush challenge. Once a month, have members of your household stand at each toilet, do a countdown, and flush all the toilets in the house at the same time. This creates a flush wave, clearing the home drain connection. Now, before I wrap up my interview with Barry, I've got a little treat for you. Can I ask you... If you have it handy, you wrote a poem about sewage. Would you be able to read it for me? Sure, I can, I can read my poem for you, <laughs> if, you if you want to, to hear my poetry. Inspiration, inspiration. Uh, yeah, sure. So, I'm here to hype the type of wipe that decomposes when inside your pipe. Though I'm not one for making speeches, it's just not fun when they wash up on beaches. It's okay to flush the soft and the plush, but it shouldn't go down unless it is must. So please make sure your advertisement savvy. Don't trust TV. Know what goes into your lavvy. Nice. Full disclosure, Skylar Frank, executive director of the London Environmental Network, had heard that poem, loved it, and wanted me to make sure I asked Barry to read it for the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for your work, which is... Um, you know, sometimes some of these this stuff is kind of fun, but it's so important and critical to keeping our water safe and our sewers clear. Um, so uh, kudos to you. Well, thank you. And, and thanks to everybody for doing their part. And uh, if we all work together, then we make this a far more sustainable environment for our future generations. So go on, pour some fat into a grease cup do the flush challenge, and stop putting anything other than pee-poo and toilet paper in the toilet. Now I want to ask you to take a step deeper into the water. No, not the sewage water. In your mind, or in real life if you're there, Take a step closer to the river, Deshkanzipi. Remember how water feels. I met Wasezi Deliri by the river in Thames Park on a balmy day in November 2020 to talk about the spirit of the water, connecting to it, and taking responsibility for protecting it. Note, you may hear the water or some traffic noises in the background. Can you introduce yourself? Bojo, Wasiasage Kwe Indigena Kaz, Gay Mong and Dodem, Mede Wana Kwe and Dao, Inishnabe Kwe and Dao Niso Medewid, Nui Jaganashi Majina. So, whenever I introduce myself, if I'm speaking, no matter where it is, I always introduce myself in that way because that's who, who I am as an Anishinaabe woman. So, I introduced my spirit name, which is what creation knows and recognizes me as. And then I'm also from the Loon clan. And I also explained that I'm third degree Medewin. And so I participate and I'm a part of the Three Fires Medewin Lodge. And I have been since I was a baby. 
And I also explained that I'm Midewanakwe, which is in our in our lodge and the ceremonies that I go to, it's a in English called a water line. And so my grand my grandmother belongs to it, my mother, me, my daughter, and now my granddaughter. So we have five living generations in our water line. And that responsibility basically is that I have responsibility to the water, to the teachings, to the ceremony, to protect and to make sure that that is pushed into the future. So, miigwech. Thank you, miigwech. I asked Wasezi to talk a little more about her relationship with water and education around it. All our understanding of water and, and why it's so important and why, why women in particular are the caretakers and responsibility, have that responsibility of water is found in our creation story. And from within that creation story, we have water teachings. And so our water teachings come from the creation story. And so um, as a Medewanakwe, as an Anishinaabe woman, and especially as a Medewanakwe, that my responsibility is to, to know and to make sure that I know that creation story and I know the water teachings in order for me to pass those on to my daughter. And, and I do that in all kinds of ways. And we do that collectively as Anishinaabe women in our lodge in all kinds of ways. I've spent many years fasting on the earth going without food and water, participating in lots of teaching sessions, and just there's all kinds of um, rites of passage that young, young people participate in in our, in our culture, and, and I participated in those when that time came. And again, it's all about the water, especially for young women. When Wasezi talks about knowing the Anishinaabe creation story, she's talking about a story that can take seven days to tell and that is told only at special times in the protection of a lodge. For a general understanding of the creation story, you can look for the Mishomis book, written by Edward Benton Benet, who was the Grand Chief of Wasezi's Lodge. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. This podcast is looking at water in London, and especially Deshkanzibi, also known as the Thames or Antler River. Uh, we're talking about the water's health, as well as the ideal goal of the river being clean enough to swim in, to fish from, to drink from safely. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, how do you see the river's health? I guess it it smells pretty bad. (laughs) And I know that I even, um, being younger and being a teenager and playing by the river and stuff, I never wanted to touch the water because then you had that smell on you. Like if your feet got wet or your hand, you put your hands in the water, then you take your hands out and they, they smell pretty bad. And just looking around me now, I see quite a bit of garbage in the river. And I know there's a lot of things that end up in the river that maybe we don't mean to do. We don't mean to put those things in there or have them be in there, but they end up in there. So in my community, I come from both Deshkan Zibing and Onyata Aga, which is Chippewa and Oneida First Nation. Uh, my family's come from both of those communities on my father's side. And so I live right along the river in Oneida. And below us, there was lots of medical supplies that were washing up along the shores of the, of the river. And a lot of our community members still fish in the river, still utilize the river in that way for fishing. And um, I know my children play along the shores of the river still. So that's one sign that the river is not well. Um, and just sometimes it's 
my kids always ask me like, well, can we even eat the fish though? Because we go fishing a lot and they're like, well, should we even eat it? What if we get sick? And so to me, that signifies the wellness or the unwellness of our water if my children are questioning whether or not they can eat something from the river. And my grandfather grew up along the shores of calling it the shores, <laughs> grew up along Tem- the Thames River. And he remembers being able to swim in the river and it being clear mm-hmm. and being able to see to the bottom of the, of the river. And because where we live, it's, it's a lot deeper than it is here in London. There's still pretty some shallow areas, but it's, it's a lot deeper. And um, so he remembers doing that. And they used to actually slide down the clay banks. There's a lot of tall clay banks where we live and they used to slide down the clay banks into the river and during his time a lot of people still access the river for water for cooking and stuff Mm. and so I'm not sure how safe it was (laughs) but they did do that because we oftentimes didn't have running water on the reserve and so I think the water is pretty dirty it makes me sad that we have this beautiful river that flows through all of our communities Mm. and And it is scary sometimes to think about eating the fish that, you know, we might fish in here. Or it's sad that we can't, you know, that I don't want to walk out into the water, you know, and and be okay with that. Because there's lots of areas here in London where, you know, it's pretty shallow and it's hot in the summer. And it'd be nice to be able to, you know, wade around in the river. But I don't see people doing that. (laughs) If we're afraid even to step into the water, Mm -hmm. even to touch it. How much more difficult is it then to make a real connection um, yeah. to that water when we, you know, just in our natural mindset, you just want to run into the water and mm-hmm. play in the summertime. You just want to touch that. And and so I think that's a big block to create within ourselves to say, no, like, don't even touch it. Yeah, <laughs> and it is. And I, it takes a lot of effort for me to... And it takes a lot of work for me because I always have to think, well, no, I have to, I have to constantly tell this river, you're beautiful. And so when we were walking last night, that's what I was doing. I was admiring her as she was moving under the bridge. And I was like, oh, she looks so beautiful. And listen to her, listen to her sound. She sounds so beautiful tonight, I said. And so it's important to do that because you're right. If I'm thinking you that water is gross and I don't even want to touch it, um, and I don't want to be near it and I don't want to, you know, have a relationship with it in that way that it, it stinks is. And, yeah, all of yeah. those things because I can smell it now and that's, it's kind of, it's not a good feeling. And then it just, it just makes me sad because, you know, at one time this would have been a thriving, clean, beautiful river and we've done so much harm and still she tries to provide life and sustain life. There's so many geese and ducks and fish and frogs and all these little bugs that still receive life from this river and she struggles so much to keep herself well and we don't do enough on our part and it's to me too it's the the idea of of just having the 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 vision or the imagination to even try Mm -hmm. do you can you imagine clean water running in this river Yeah, I think so. I think, and I guess I see, and that's how we are. We're always hopeful for the future that maybe things may not be what we want in the moment, but what do we do in this moment to make sure that in the future that it's different? 
And we need to have hope. That's one thing in our belief as well, that we have to have hope. Otherwise, we don't want to move. We don't want to do anything different. And we just say, well, what's the point and give up? And so we don't push for life. And so I have hope and I have to have hope that things will be different and our water will be clean. And some of the ways that we do that are through raising awareness. So I know I really like that Streams for Dreams program that they have within schools. I wish more schools would do Is it. Is that where they paint the fish? That's where they it... paint the fish. And I always wondered that. I would drive by schools in London. I'm like, why do they have all these fish on their, <laughs> on their fences? <laughs> and then I got to participate um, in one of the schools in Delaware. And I learned more about what that was. Like, I learned what it was. And I was like, oh, this is such an amazing thing. And again, it was a young girl. It was a little girl who started that. Streams for Dreams is a Canadian eco-education program started in Burnaby, British Columbia over 20 years ago by Louise Towell and her daughter Chanel Lapierre. As part of the program, school children learn about their local watershed and how to safeguard the water, and they paint dream fish, which are displayed on schoolyard fences. Wasese, who has a master's degree in professional education, mentioned the importance of children's education several times when we talked. She speaks here of one experience she had working with young kids. And I know I had another conversation and I was explaining how um, Indigenous people used to use canoes to, to get around in the waterways. And I said, um, and then I said, and now today I said we use boats. I said, so why do you, why do you think there's, there's a difference in our waterways when we switch from canoes to boats? And so they were able to explain. They said there's, wa- there's noise, so it scares all the animals. And they said there's gas that leaks into the water. And these were grade twos. <laughs> hmm. I said, we use canoes because they're the least intrusive um, to the environment. They create the least amount of, I guess to use the word today, footprint on the environment. And, and as Anishinaabe people, as the red color of people, we were given, resp- all people were actually given the responsibility to be stewards to land and so our teachings always remind us to do things in a way that are least intrusive to the earth every single thing that we do when we're building communities or we're building cities we're hunting we're you know wanting to move our culture forward we always have to think how is that going to affect the earth how is it going to affect seven generations from now will it have an effect will it change things too much And so everything we did, the homes we lived in, the clothing we made, we did that all on purpose, not because we couldn't make bigger and better things, um, but because we chose not to. Mm -hmm. And so there's a choice, there's agency in that. Um, And I think we have to get back more to that too. Like, do we really need bigger and better all the time? Like all these buildings around here, do do we need those? Or is there something different we could do that would be less harmful to the earth and still provide us with homes? Yeah, agree. hundred <laughs> percent. And to go back to, to talking about teaching and teaching kids and younger generation, um, obviously that's so important. Um, I also think that there's a lot of pressure on that younger generation right now because everyone is saying, you know, oh, it's going to be up to you and you're going to fix things. And I think, you know, you're doing it. Um, I'm trying to fix things, our, you know, yeah. to, to work towards a better future Mm -hmm. ourselves um so i think it needs to be cross-generational and you Mm -hmm. have someone like autumn peltier and her great aunt also Mm -hmm. doing the water walks who are whereas cross generations are doing the work Mm -hmm. we're not just leaving it yeah 
And that's really important because that's that's our responsibility. The fullness of it, the way that we talk about that, about future, is that seven generations ago, they thought about us. Hmm. And they did something to preserve things for us. They did something so that we exist today and we have what we have. And so they thought about us and the things that we would need and the things that we might need. And our responsibility living in the present is to take all of that knowledge, to do something with it now, and then send that into the future. What are they going to have? And do I want to leave them with a burden of having all of these things that they have to fix? Or do I want to leave them um, with less of a burden? Mm -hmm. So they have... um, just that they have a good life. I want to make sure, you know, it would be amazing if seven generations from now, you know, my, my great, great, great granddaughter is able to swim in this river, mm-hmm. you know, and to play in it. And, and I hope for that. I hope it happens sooner. Yeah. I hope it happens sooner. I hope it happens sooner too, a lot sooner. And I imagine so did Josephine Mandaman. Anishinaabe elder Josephine Mundaman, who I just referred to there, did her first water walk in 2003, walking around Lake Superior, carrying water in a copper vessel to raise awareness and pray for the water. She went on to lead many more water walks across the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence River, and many other major rivers, inspiring a movement of Anishinaabe water walkers. Mundaman, known as Grandmother Water Walker, died in 2019, but passed on the legacy of protecting the waters to her great niece, Autumn Peltier, who is now an internationally recognized youth activist. The following is a quote from Josephine Mondaman. We've known for a long time that water is alive. Water can hear you. Water can sense what you are saying and what you are feeling. There's been a place where I put tobacco in the water, where the water is so still. It was dead. I prayed for it. I put my tobacco in the water and my tobacco started floating around. So the water came alive. It heard my prayers. It heard the song. So I know it listens and it can come alive if you pay attention to it. Give it respect and it can come alive. Like anything. Like a person who is sick. If you give them love, take care of them. They'll come alive. They'll feel better. It's the same with our mother, the earth, and the water. Give it love. As Anishinaabe people, we were given tobacco to use to pray with. And so, um, and so we often make wa- um, offerings to the water or to, you know, to the earth in, in all her forms. But that's a key element. And so I think a lot of times we talk a lot about conservation and there's lots of good organizations and lots of good people doing lots of good work in terms of that and bringing awareness about, you know, our climate. But oftentimes, and, and that's what Josephine really was able to help bring awareness to, is the importance of praying for water. <laughs> and she was a grandmother from our lodge. And, and her, her great niece has now carried that on, is carrying that on, that work, and raising that awareness. You know, a lot of times when I go places, whether it's a ministry, and I talk to people at the ministry level of natural resources, and, or I speak, you know, at schools or I speak wherever I may be that I may be speaking that um, my role is to make sure that I always speak to the importance of prayer. And there's lots of ways that people pray, like all, all nations do that differently. So even if it's just me sitting here by the water and, you know, talking to her and admiring her and, you know, enjoying 
this little bit of time of being close to her, then that's just as important, mm -hmm. you know, and um, it's directing our thoughts. That's what prayer is, too. It's all about directing your thoughts and your energy. Yep, absolutely. And even just, you know, letting the river or a stream or a lake or the ocean, for that matter, mm -hmm. um, bring you calm or bring you power, too, right? Because mm -hmm. it really does. Like, um, I mean, that's why people always say, give your baby a bath, you know, before bed <laughs> or your kids. Because <laughs> what happens is they naturally calm you know from water because we're water we're we're made up completely of water yeah so i i agree with all you things that you're saying and and especially to the need for hope um everyone's culture and religion and traditions that in probably all of them mm -hmm. there are water ceremonies yeah etc and if there aren't like Find your own way, right? Yeah. And I imagine there was because it's such a critical element. I need you need you need water to live. Like we every single human being needs water to drink. Like you're made up of water. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I think that's one thing that does connect us all as human beings is that that's one critical thing we all need is 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 water. We need clean water. Well, Saisy, I can say that I feel more hopeful now after um, talking to you. So thank you. Well, miigwech, I really enjoyed being here. I actually really enjoy sitting by the river because she is beautiful, even though she's sometimes a bit smelly and there's lots of garbage. Like she still is really amazingly beautiful. And we're really lucky here that we have lots of opportunity to be by her mm -hmm. and and to sit and to just be a part of creation. We're sitting on these, you know, on the earth pretty much. And it's nice to connect that way Um and everything we, a lot of things that we do in society today, I think they remove us constantly from our natural environment, from building relationship with the earth and, and our, and creation around us. And, um, and that's another thing, like as, as indigenous people, indigenous people tended to immerse themselves more in the environment instead of trying to get away from it. Mm-hmm. It seems like modern society always wants to get away from. I think there was the yeah <laughs> nature as enemy for yeah, so long. Yeah, um, and and building up walls. Yeah, and, and but living now, way above it. Yeah, instead of, of trying night. to understand how it works and yeah. work together with it. Yeah, it's just part of being human beings too, because we're human beings and we make bad choices. And and in our belief, the Creator gave us free will which means he gave us teachings to live by and a way to live life and responsibilities. But then he also gave us the gift of free will, which means we have the ability to make our own choices about how we live our life. Um, and so I think as human beings in as a whole, we've kind of kind of strayed way off. But there's yeah, there's always that ability to get back on, you know, get back on track and do what we need to do to to continue to live life, to continue to live this life here. <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, it's been nice sitting by the water. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad I came out today. It's a beautiful day. It was a beautiful day. And I encourage you to take some time to sit by the water as well. Interact with the water in whatever way feels safe and good for you. If you can, take some extra garbage with you when you leave. And appreciate what we have. When you're home, keep Barry Orr's advice in mind. 
pick up a grease cup and use it for your oil and grease waste. Return pharmaceuticals to the pharmacy. Make sure there's a garbage basket in every washroom. Think about everything that's going down your toilet or drain. Imagine clean water. Imagine swimming in the river. And be part of making that a safe reality. I want to thank Wasaisi Deliri and Barry Orr for talking to me. Thanks also to Leah, Nicole, Sarah, and Skyler at the London Environmental Network for their help. This podcast is a production of the London Environmental Network. The music, courtesy of archesaudio.com. I'm Molly Mixa. Thank you.